This week, I want to spend some time thinking about Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. If you didn't grab a Bible um, on your way or don't have one on your phone or something like that, just grab the Pew Bible. You can follow along right with me. Um, it's on page 625, big number 66, right there. That's where we'll be this morning. And after uh, this week and the next couple of VBS, the CL- I can't, I keep calling it VBS, CLC, <laughs> the CLC sermons will move into kind of a, a more regular sermon series as we might be used to. <clears throat> In order to get into verses 1 and 2, and I, I just, I love this, there's something that really struck me about this, this verse, especially I was being self-reflective and thinking a little bit about Father's Day, being a dad, and of course, some of us are first, is anybody else first dad, first Father's Day? Stand up in the back and make that t-shirt scene. Look back there, look back there. First Father's Day, there he is with his dad bod. A 22-year-old dad bod looks different than a 37-year-old, but you know, you'll get there too, brother. Just wait. In order to get into chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, we have to pay attention to the context that sits before it. You might uh, have heard me harp on this, and I'll continue just in case we have somebody new here this morning, and maybe you're not as familiar with your Bible, and if that's true, that's okay. We're glad you're here. Um, But the big numbers we added to make things easier for us to find things, God didn't put them into the text, right? And so we have to pay attention to those things. So even as we open up to 66 verse 1, it says, thus says the Lord. But that leans upon what happened before. Now what happened before? Look at verse 17. Before we even get to this, we're introduced to kind of the end of Isaiah's vision. And this vision has given us an image of the suffering servant, the Messiah who will come and bear, and bear the sorrows and the iniquities of his people and yet come to life again. And not only will this Messiah bear the sorrows and the iniquities of his people, but it will open up and expand beyond just little Israel and it will echo into the entirety of the world. So much so that God says, not only only will this salvation echo to the ends of the earth, but I, God, will step in and recreate all things, making them new. Verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and the new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into our minds. Now, if you look at, if you look at that and you listen to that, that should bring something up into your ears as a person perhaps who has read your New Testament, and you'll recognize that this is very similar to what we have in Revelation. Isaiah is envisioning this new heavens and new earth, and John is also given a vision at the end of your Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven is the first earth had passed away, which again is just an echo right here. Then, of course, God, that is, he is in the midst of his people, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, Death shall be no more, mourning shall be no more, crying shall be no more, pain shall be no more, for the former things have passed away, right? You can see how John is seeing what Isaiah saw, and what Isaiah is seeing at the end of his book is actually echoing back to what Isaiah saw as his vision opened up in Isaiah chapter 2. This world that has been transformed, this new creation And I love this line. This really struck me new. I'd never really considered it deeply before. But this right here struck me anew. For the former things shall not be remembered. The things things of our age, our experience, our world, 
will be forgotten. So much so that you could actually divide history into two great cataclysms, into two great periods, into the old world and the new world, the old age and the new age, the old creation and the new creation. It's so divided, so divided that there will come a point where we will forget the world that we're in now. Imagine that. Imagine that Imagine that physical pain is so distant a memory that you can't actually what it was like to ache in your bones when the weather changed. Dad bod back there doesn't know this, but imagine, imagine that things have shifted so deeply and so significantly that, that you can't remember what it's like to bury someone. You can't remember. Imagine that things have shifted so drastically that as you, as you consider the past, it's hard for you to, to remember what it was like to cry tears of anger or fear or sorrow or pain. Imagine what it would be like to forget what anger and sorrow and hate and greed and lust even feel like. I mean, goodness gracious, guys, I haven't watched a movie or heard a song or seen a television show that was not driven this past week, driven by these sins. We can't even tell stories without letting that be the very nugget that drives the whole problem. And here we are conceiving of a world in which those things are so far removed we can't even remember them. That's what God wants to do. How deeply he wants to shift everything about who we are. I love how the chapter, or how that section ends. We have to pay attention to it because it's going to lead us right into 66 verses 1 and 2. But notice verse 25. So right before, right here, right before we get to it. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Imagine, imagine that vision coming. You're walking, you're walking, you're just on a walk, and you look out to your left where you would normally maybe see a deer or something like that, and there you see a wolf and a sheep, and they're both eating grass. What a puzzling world, Right? Or a lion and a lamb sitting next to them. Or children playing with poisonous serpents, letting them crawl all over them. <laughs> I can't deal with that world. Right? I mean, there we are talking about fundamental shifts. This is the new creation. It is new. This is what God has been talking about the whole time. This is the promise and the vision of the prophets. And Jesus is just leaning. He is the fulfillment of it. And John in Revelation is seeing it come and attack and take over and change and transform the world. But brothers and sisters, this world is hard to conceive of. And the world that we find ourselves mired in as we look out, the window is full of all kinds of messages and messaging trying to draw you away from the verdant, beautiful new creation that God has begun in you and longs to complete. And so we are pulled away. We're pulled away by success or by money or by dreams or by 
by, by desires where we're told we're not good enough and we need to buy this to have that goodness. And we constantly are pursuing other things. And God is often in our weeks the last thing on our minds. Sundays rarely functions as our first day of the week, does it? It's the last day of the week. We've functionally put God at the end, not the beginning. And isn't that true? I had this really interesting experience when I was um, a chaplain. Uh, I, I've talked about this before, being a chaplain at a youth detention facility. We kept anywhere from 10 to, um, they kept anywhere from 10 to 20 kids in this place. Well, that was a bad idea. All right. These, these things are stupid and I hate them. All right. What was I saying? Okay, so we're sitting around. And I tell you what, these kids... They range in ages from, the youngest we ever had was 12. He had raped his sister. And the oldest we had was 17. Um, But this probably was a little bit smaller. So uh, there was probably about 14 to 16 years old. And I tell you what, these kids, they're all, we're sitting in this main room and we're watching cops. These kids loved cops. They loved it. Which is a lesson for us about what television actually does. Because they learned only how to do crime (laughs) power. If, if they did. Anyway, they're all talking and they're posturing and they're talking about girls and drugs and crime and they're kind of doing things that boys do. And, and I learned that the kid who was sitting next to me was a dad. He had two kids. He was 16 years old. And I said to him as they were talking, I just kind of leaned over to him and I said to him, I said, uh, what would you do if you found out that there was a room full of boys talking about your daughters like you all are talking about the, these girls now. And he said without missing a beat, like I mean, like just boom, out of his mouth, I'd kill him. You wouldn't, but that's all right. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I said to him, how much do you think or how does God experience, how does God feel about the daughters that you're, his daughters that you're speaking of? Kind of got a little quiet in my area. The preacher ruins things. This is just, don't invite me to parties. It's bad news. And we began asking, I began asking a question, like, what, do you, what, what would you feel like if your daughters ended up here? Like, immediately it was like their eyes cleared. Like, uh, like two seconds before it was all sex, drugs, and chasing, running, running past the cops, right? I mean, it was all, it was all the crimes, it was all the conquests, it was all that stuff. And then I started asking about their kids. And it was like suddenly the blinders came off and they're like, oh, we don't want that for our kids. Half of the people in that room had kids. And they didn't want it. And I say, isn't that true for all of us? Do you want your kids working the hours you're working? Do you want them spending the amount of time with their kids, your grandkids, that you're spending with your kids? Do you want them chasing after the same dreams you're chasing after? Let's make it really churchy and painful. Do you want them to have the relationship with God that you have? Because I have learned something, and you can, you can set me aside. I've not been a dad that long. But I can speak within a decade and plus of youth ministry, and I can tell you this, that your children's relationship with God will always be less than your relationship because you are leading them. So wherever you are leading them, they will follow. If you stop leading them, I will not see them in church. I will not see them in church. You will not see them in church. And it will not be my fault. And it will not be the elders' fault. And it will not be the youth ministry's fault. Right? These are really heavy truths, but we have to pay attention to them because something matters. Like, we live in a world where things matter. 
I know that you go through life and you feel like you're working. You're going from one thing to another and every hour just feels like you're always behind the clock. And understand that. But let me tell you, every minute that you have matters. Your life matters. Every second with a child matters. Every second with your spouse matters. Every person that you deal with at work matters. All of this has the impetus and power of possible new creation. When we lose sight of that, we lose sight of everything. And we sink into the mire that we have been lifted up from. This isn't about judgment or about guilt, brothers and sisters. This is about joy. This is about life. This is about transformation. This is about meaning. You were made for those things. We can't give ourselves to lesser things. So we move into this next line after hearing these great visions of transformation, great visions of power. And 66 verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so, all of them have come to be, declares the Lord. Now that's a small thing, it might seem to sort of slip by us, but there's an important point here, and the point is that God has made all things. By him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so if we put it in the context of what the people who are originally hearing this are thinking, when they ask, when God asks, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, what house are you going to build for me? They're immediately thinking the house that they built for him, right? The house is the temple, the Temple of Solomon, and so some of you who might not be as familiar with your Bibles, and that's okay. In the history of the people of God, they decided that God ought to have a temple. Of course, the kings decided this God needs a temple. And so they built him a temple. They inlaid it with gold and precious gems and bronze and silver. And it was considered, or is considered, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. My rough, you have to give me 3,000 years of grace, okay, but my rough math puts the gold in the temple as about $65 million. About $65 million worth of gold. Not including bronze, silver, jewels, labor, cedar, all these other things. I mean, that's nothing to sniff at, right? I mean, that's like a big deal. That's a lot of gold. What's gold to God? What's a box inlaid with gold to God? And yet they looked at this thing and they're like, look at what we built you, God. And God's like, yeah, it's real nice. Thanks. Good job. Way to go. I mean, it's like, it's like Paul, where's, where'd Paul go? I was going to make fun of, there he is, way back there. It was like Paul and his, uh, his like terrible picture he got this morning. You're supposed to laugh at that because we're making fun of Paul, guys. Jeez. Anyway, uh, good job, guys. And what does God say? He says, I vastly prefer the new creation, Right? I get a choice. I can have a box of gold to live in. No, thank you. I prefer the new heavens and the new earth. Or even as perhaps when we look into the new, in the New Testament, echoing back into the Old Testament, God says, I don't, I'm not built, I don't live in, in temples made by hand, but instead I live in people. And that's a face to live in, right? That's my baby. When she was a baby. So God says here, what are... 
what are you doing? Why are you working so hard? In one way, we might just, there might just be something to say about our work ethic, about our environmental concerns, about our economic priorities, about the things that we think matter and the things that God thinks matter, because the thing that we think matter is gold, and we're all working for it, and we're all saving it, and God says, what is that to me? Why are you working for things that will perish and fade away when there is so much more? And the nice, fancy, technical term of this is aseity. Say it. Aseity. It's a nice, nice theological term. And it means God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from you. Which hurts our pride, doesn't it? Because we want everyone to need us. Need me, please. Right? We just all. And God says, I don't. But there's a tremendous freedom on the back end of that. I don't want my daughters to feel like they need to contribute to the house in, the same, in that sense. Rather, I want them to feel free to just live and move and have their being. God has already created all of this. And he says, stop trying to create something for me and enjoy the thing that I have made. Find your joy and experience and life in it, which then leads us to a very important question. How do I know that I am made for this kingdom? How do I know that I will enter into the new creation? And God very handily gives us a verse for that. (laughs) If you look at verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so they all came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one on whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. There's a significance there that God sees us. We might not stop over that or think much about that, but biblically speaking, seeing is not just to see something, but rather to see something is to look upon it, and to look upon it is to accept it, right? So uh, a few prophets later, Amos, uh, in Amos, The Lord says to the people, I will not look upon your offerings and your sacrifices. He doesn't mean I don't know they exist, I'm going to pretend they don't exist. He's simply saying, as as looking at it, I'm not accepting it, I'm not taking it into me. By the same token, the priests of, of, of Israel would stand up before the people and they would offer a benediction, a blessing. And part of that blessing would be asking God or blessing the people by saying, God, look upon them and be gracious to them. Turn your face toward them and grant them peace. Because to look upon somebody, for God to look upon you is for God to favor you and to be a part of your life and to be in his presence and therefore enjoying his peace and blessing. God says, I will look upon this kind of person. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say Christian. He doesn't say Jew. He doesn't say Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Catholic, Church of Christ, whatever. He doesn't say that. He says, humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. And this is important for us to spend some time with and just to think about for a moment and and to spend a moment to ask the question, is this me? Does this reflect me? Am I truly humble? And here I I want to lean more on the action side of this word more than just the feeling side of this word because all y'all feel humble and none y'all feel proud, even though you might be very proud, right? Because in our boss's office, we are quite humble, but when we leave our boss's office, the pride can come back, Right? We're, we're all aware that we're a little bit of all of these things. And so I want to talk about humility as an action. We are called to be humble. What does that mean? It means don't look at anyone else but Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Considered himself of no account. 
So Paul says, take on that same attitude. Look upon Jesus. This is what humility functions like. Not just I feel humble or I think I'm humble or I don't think I'm proud, but rather, what does it look like? Do not consider yourselves better than you ought, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Look not to your own desires, but to the interests of others. That's an action, isn't it? Like when I'm moving and thinking about how will this affect my world, most of the time, all of us think, how will this affect? And what is the Bible telling you to think? How does this affect? Right? That's humility. Have you done that? Have you considered that? Is that how you think? Because in the new creation, this world that is opened up and new, no longer are we having the necessity, if we ever do, but having the necessity to be self-interested and self-warranted and self-consumed, but rather now we're thinking of others as we experience that. Contrite in spirit, literally in Hebrew, this is broken breath. That's literally what the word is, broken breath. Uh, You know well, we talked about this last week, that breath and spirit are the same words in Hebrew. So if you think about a broken breath, what do you do when your breath is broken? How many of you have ever had to run, and your breath got broken. The, my uh, Emery is so glad that school is over with because it means there's no longer a minute run in gym because that minute was torture. It was veritable hell. She complained about it every week. We are done with it. Praise God. But when your breath is broken, you stop, don't you? You stop. Because you can't go on anymore. You're, you're, you're literally stopped where you are. You begin to listen. You begin to take account you begin to think. You begin to hear. Right? Those things, you are stopped in your tracks. Are we the people who are humble? Are we the people who are stopped to listen and to hear what God has to say? This is, in fact, most likely where Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, remember, he gives it, the, we call them the Beatitudes. Blessed is this, 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 and this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is where Jesus derives it from. Those who have the broken spirit, who are stopping and listening. Now, all of us have the capacity to listen, but the one thing that pride always does is it stops that. What is the opposite of the broken, the broken breath, the contrite of spirit? The opposite of that is the defiant one, the one who keeps on moving, who will not stop, who will not listen, who will not relent, but rather here the one that God will look upon is the one who is willing to consider others and to stop and to listen. Finally, and I think most importantly, because we kind of do this, we work in threes. As somebody who writes a lot, I write in threes. We like that boom, boom, boom. Da, 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 right? You understand this, right? I don't need to do that again, do I? That was enough. Okay, good. Okay, good. So we have humble, contrite in spirit, trembles at my word. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? When was the last time the word of God caused us to tremble? When was the last time the words of judgment Sin. When was the last time that we considered how, how great the chasm between the holy living God, the author of new creation, and our own brokenness and our own sin and our constantly be pulling, being pulled aside by every whim and idle and busy little thing. Like bees, we buzz around, missing the thing that is right in front of us. How often has that caused us to tremble? Jesus says, 
Uh, this is a good uh, Christian t-shirt for those of you who make those and sell them. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I mean, I, this is just Jesus, right? This is, that's a word to cause some trembling. We should tremble a bit. And yet, my friends, fear is not the only thing that causes us to tremble, is it? Uh, this past week, my 15-year-old bride, 15-year-old, that sounded weird, that was wrong. We will be editing that for content. I think I got red on that one. That might, be, that might be legit embarrassment. Maybe a first. Write that down. It's got to be a first. 15-year anniversary. So we were thinking, Peggy, dial it back, all right? I got to keep going here. We got like five minutes, all right? I'm almost done. Just They're going to hear you so much online, they're going to think you go to church here. All right. All of that aside... When we talk about trembling in the Bible, it comes into that sense of judgment. But one of the things that happens to us is we become devout Christians. We really begin to try to live into this. And I know none of us is perfect. I know we're all working on this. But we try to set aside the junk that kills us, right? And so as that happens, we begin to lose a sense of fear of hell, which is a good thing in some respects. It is good that we are not trembling with fear like God's a judger who's just waiting to smack you and shoot you off the earth and send you to hell or something like that. When I thought about trembling, um, as I thought about my wedding, because we were sort of having this, 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 this little vacation, um, thinking about anniversary, I was thinking about my wedding and how much I trembled during that time. I, that was not a, like, that was just, that's honest. I don't know who was making noises back there. <laughs> Grammarine. I mean, you, you're scared, aren't you? Uh, you're scared. But you're also emotionally in love, right? You have a legitimate fear, but you're also excited, right? Trembling is a part of that process. And one of the interesting things is we consider the new heavens and the new earth. And we consider the way that the Bible talks about it over and over again. The metaphor that prevails over all things is the metaphor of a wedding. You ever notice that? Jesus is always talking about wedding parties, which is insane because weddings are terrible. But he's always doing it. He's always celebrating this. He's talking with the wedding feast of Abraham. There's this, there's a guy who was going to throw a party for his a wedding party for his son who was getting married. He's always got these parables. We look in Revelation. It's the bride that comes down from heaven, the bride that invites. We read in the Old Testament over and over again. Why? Because there's all kinds of trembling that happens at weddings. But it's a, it's a mixture of fear and joy and excitement because something new is in the wind, and everything is about to change. And that's exactly what is happening with the new heavens and the new earth. That's exactly what Isaiah is talking about. Those who tremble at my word, not just because they're afraid of judgment or something like that. I'm not trying to scare you into the kingdom of God. I'm trying to invite you to something that is completely and utterly new. And it means fear. 
and it means joy, and it means love, and it means excitement, because anytime you're faced with something brand new, man, there's all kinds of emotions mixed up. And God is inviting us. He is inviting us to transformation. He is inviting us to new creation. He's inviting us to experience all this and so much more. God says to you today, whether you're a Christian who is maybe needing to step up into a new way, into a new element of that new creation that God is making in you, or whether you are not a Christian at all, or maybe you're a Christian who's kind of wandered and you're struggling with it, hear these words and pull all of this together, this new creation that God wants to do, and let the Spirit speak to you through the words of Hosea. Therefore, behold, I will allure you and bring you into the wilderness to speak tenderly to you, and I will give you vineyards and make the valley of anchor the door of hope. And there you shall answer in the days of your youth, as in the time when you came out of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, no longer my Lord. This is God's heart for us, to bring us into this new creation. How will you experience it this week? How will you embody these principles of humility and contrition and trembling at God's word? If you have a decision to make this morning, you can come and meet with me down front or as the service closes, if you wish to meet with the elders back there and pray with them privately. But we want to invite you today to make today new, to make your life new, to allow God to do all of that work in you as we stand and sing this last song.